I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, Rabbi Grushko. Can we call you Lisa, or what do you prefer? Lisa's good. The only combination I don't love is Rabbi Lisa. We were talking about that. Yeah. Okay. We were chatting before. a little before. Okay, it's, uh, it becomes a gendered thing. Because people wouldn't say Rabbi Pete, I'm guessing. Correct. Right. They would just say Rabbi. Oh, Mayor Pete. Oh, Mayor Pete. <laughs> Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. We have a really special episode for you today. We kind of branded it our Super Soul Chosen Family special. Yes. Um, because we're both obsessed with Super Soul Sunday with Oprah. And spirituality, although we're not, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I'm not the best at practicing my spirituality, but I'm invested. <laughs> I'm a seeker. I would I'm say a, that. Yeah, I'm a seeker. I'm a seeker. But I think, you know, this is a moment where we're all looking to a certain degree for some kind of comfort or reassurance in humanity. I mean, this is is Pisces season. This is the time to do it. I know. It's all about emotions. And we spoke a little bit about it on our episode with Robbie Hoffman, but we've both been really drawn to Judaism. I know for me personally, so many of my artistic inspirations, I mean, not consciously, but they're all Jewish, like Bette Midler, Sandra Bernhard, Barbara Streisand. Like, these people have informed so much of my view of the arts and you know there's a strong part of what they do that is related to Judaism and and their spirituality same for me my first like comedy inspiration was Sarah Silverman who's super Jewish and she's you know she embraces it and what I love about that religion is how it's both a faith but also like an intellectual practice and people love to be conflicted and argue and disagree and I was raised Catholic but I've never felt that Catholicism was really a space to question and I just love that you get to do that in the Jewish faith. I don't think we could have found anyone better than Rabbi Lisa Grushko who is our special guest today. She's a Montreal um Legend? Would you say that? Rabbi. <laughs> she's a Montreal. She, well, she's a rock star as much as a rabbi can be. Yeah, she is a rabbi at the Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom here uh, in Montreal. She is the first queer rabbi that I personally know. She's quite famous here for really embracing uh, progressive views for a religious leader. Um, and her sermons are super popular. Like people actually go out on a Friday night. Yeah, Jewish I heard about Jewish. it. Exactly. Yeah. I yeah. heard about it from a friend of mine who's not Jewish, who was just going and really found something real there. I feel she would be a great character on Sex and the City. Like the girls would go to Friday night sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think we need Rabbi Greshko in our lives in as many ways as possible. So we had a great conversation with her about sexuality, faith, family, even divorce, because she she has a same-sex partner, but she was divorced in the past, and that sounded like it was a bigger problem in her community than being uh, a lesbian. Rabbi Krushko also does a lot of interfaith work. She works with Muslim leaders, Christian leaders, and... It was really important for us to go beyond the politics of the day or whatever opinion people can have about different religions. And some listeners might be atheists or some people listening might be fervent believers. So we wanted to go beyond that and ask like the big super soul questions to Rabbi Grushko. I know you really got into Oprah mode, <laughs> let me just say. Like you we got Rabbi Grushko set up and you didn't waste a second to get into your big Oprah like question. What came first in your life, God or same-sex desire? <laughs> I was conscious of my spirituality, let's say, and, and religious sense of connection before I was aware of my own sexuality. And then, I mean, I was a relatively late bloomer. I wasn't out till my mid-20s, say. So for a while, there was a real sense of struggle and how would I navigate those things together um, but that was more a challenge with institutions. Spiritually, that piece always stayed. Did you feel spiritual as a child? Because I felt very, I, I relate because I did feel as a child. Before I was kind of socialized in school and the world, I felt the presence of a higher power. Is that what you're referencing? 
I had, I had a, you know, it's interesting because that's one of the things that might be different about Judaism in some ways that were so community-based and so behaviorally based. So I was very connected to the Jewish community mm. as a kid. I went to a Jewish day school. I went to synagogue on a regular basis. Shabbat dinners were part of our family life, family celebration. So all of those things were part of it. Some of the deeper connection came through learning, which Jewishly is a very spiritual activity, kind of encountering sacred texts and asking questions. And I grew up, thanks to my parents, with a lot of nature, a lot of travel, a lot of just sense of of being connected to something bigger, you know, going out in the middle of the night and lying down on a blanket and watching a star shower. Mm. Um, I would say, though, for me, it only took on a deeper resonance, actually, when I was struggling with coming out and figuring out what that meant for my path towards the rabbinate. That was, in some ways, the closest that I got to a sense of calling or epiphany because it felt like there's this path that I'm on and it's not going to be as smooth as I thought it would be. So if I'm going to be on this path, it has to really matter to me. It has to really be what I feel like I should be doing. Were you looking for answers in that moment? I think it was much more a feeling of of yearning, of desire, of closeness and relationship, I would say. A sense that there was something, someone who I couldn't or didn't want to walk away from. You've said that coming out brought you closer to God. Can you talk about what way it brought you closer to God? I mean, if you look at the story of the Hebrew Bible, those stories that you learned as a kid, for us as Jews, one of the central parts of that story is the story of the exodus from Egypt. And it's a story of, if you if you know the Hebrew, going from Mitzrayim, which is the word for Egypt, but literally means the narrow place to a place of openness and possibility. And the God who speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, it's often terribly mistranslated as I am that I am, you know that line when Moses says, who are you? And imagine the Ten Commandments, God says, I am that I am. Um, But it really is, I will be what I will be. And so for me, coming out was a very, um, it connected me to that story of leaving a place of of narrowness and constraint and having a new sense of of possibility and freedom. Um, And to me, that was a very religious and spiritual story, you know, which I understood in a whole different way. I'm certainly not the first to do that. Um, And that story has been used by so many people in so many important ways. But for me, it really resonated at that time. John, were you a spiritual kid? I think maybe the arts for me and like my experience of the arts was the closest that I came to spirituality as a kid. But other than, you know, just loving Bible stories, I enjoyed it in the same way that I enjoyed fairy tales. You know what I mean? I don't think I really like thought that much about my spirituality. Growing up Christian for me, I wasn't necessarily ashamed of being queer or being gay, but shame was definitely an undertone. And what in what you're describing, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like that was your experience. It sounds like it was quite of a beautiful mm-hmm. discovery for you to lean on that same sex desire and that queerness that was within you. I think in that sense, it really um, revealed for me a fault line between institutionalized religion and spirituality. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's ironic because I'm a representative yeah. of, of organized religion, yeah. though I sometimes joke that Judaism is as disorganized a religion <laughs> as one can get. Why? Uh, we don't have a, a central hierarchy and line of authority. You know, but it's that's probably m- a good thing, no? I think it's a good thing. And the rabbi isn't, you know, with a direct line to God. The rabbi is a, a teacher and a member of the community. Um, so there isn't a sense of, of infallibility or of kind of being closer to God than anybody else. Um, oh, I love that. So that's, you know, and we, we tend to be an argumentative an argumentative right. people. Right. Um, and it's not a dogmatic religion by and large. It's much more about what you do than kind of signing on to a creed. Mm. And so by and large, there's a lot of room to move in that. But I grew up in a, an arm of Judaism, which has changed since, but then wasn't ordaining LGBT folks. That piece became a real a real fault line for me. And I did grow up with not anything that anybody said, but more not seeing anybody who looked like me and having an old, you know, commentary that was on our in our pews at the synagogue, which spoke about that chapter in Leviticus and, and same sex relationships as being I don't remember what the language was, whether it was something around depravity and paganism and that kind of thing. So that I remember, but it wasn't the overall messaging. 
You said something about spirituality and religion, and I think a lot of people feel spiritual but don't necessarily want to belong to a religion that's more organized or more conservative. Right. Not being somewhere more conservative, I understand, but I sometimes worry that we sell ourselves short by not looking because I think when we look, we're sometimes surprised by what we find, you know, and the fact is organized religion and institutions, as much as they're like dirty words, can do things that you can't do when you're just meeting in somebody's living room, right? We can create sacred space. We can organize community together. We can be there for each other and offer things in different ways that, that you can't if it's more do-it-yourself, you know, and I figure religions have been asking spiritual questions for millennia. So to be able to come in and be part of that conversation, right, instead of feeling like you have to start from zero and make it up from you as you go along, I think is really powerful. Shabbat shalom, everyone. You're actually part of what's called the Jewish reform movement. So that's something that you joined because the conservative rabbinical school that you planned to attend didn't ordain openly gay rabbis. Correct. Can you tell us what the Jewish reform movement is? All of the modern movements within Judaism started back in the 18th, 19th century in Europe. I won't bore you with a whole right. history <laughs> lesson. I didn't know it went that far back. I thought this was something that was like oh, no. happened with the it millennium. It sounds very hippie. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It goes far back. Um, and it actually goes back to Napoleon. Oh, um, why? Because Napoleon gave Jews citizenship. And when Jews in Europe got citizenship and the ghetto walls came down, all of a sudden it was a question of how are you going to live your Jewish life because other people weren't defining it for you as much as it used to be and you weren't living in a closed um, community as much as you were before. So that led to all kinds of questions that led to all kinds of different answers and that in turn led to the reform movement and then the modern orthodox movement and the conservative movement and all of these different ways of figuring out how to navigate how to be a Jew in the modern world, which hadn't been a question before Napoleon. So how does the reform regard that idea of, like, how does a Jew move through the world? So what's the reform mm -hmm. movement's vision of that? Uh, it aligned with a lot of scholarship at that time, which had to do with historical criticism and biblical criticism, which, as I sometimes say, doesn't mean reading the Bible and saying, well, that's a bad book, but rather <laughs> kind of identifying, right, that it comes from a certain place in a certain time, which then led to questions about, well, how do we know what God's word really is? And maybe we need some more humility in terms of knowing how we're supposed to act as Jews and as religious people, right? Yeah. So it just opened up all of those questions. And within that, the reform movement has tended to be on the, the forefront of being progressive in terms of whether it's the ordination of women or of LGBTQ folks. The, the model is one not of building walls up, but of real openness and engagement and uh, and change, which has its own challenges. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think that what it does and what drew me to it, other than the fact that it was the place that would take me, yeah. <laughs> is, um, is that it seemed to really recognize where people are. The fact is no one really is going to their rabbi and saying, hey, can I eat this bacon double cheeseburger? Right. Right. <laughs> if they want to do it, they're going to do it. Do you do it? I don't. Okay. <laughs> but they're not, by and large, looking for permission, right? right? And so it becomes a different conversation because now that people don't have to be Jewish, now that it's not being forced from the inside or from the outside, it's much more of a question of, like, how do we show that this can be a meaningful, central piece of your life? Yeah. Right? So it's a very different set of questions and conversations. Do you work with young queer people who would come from different branches of Judaism? Because I know, for example, in my neighborhood, I live in a neighborhood that's very queer, but also that has a huge Hasidic community here in mm -hmm. Montreal. It's called the My Land. And I sometimes wonder, I'm like, what if you're born queer into a Hasidic family? What do you do? Who do you speak to? How do you explore your sexuality? How do you, do you explore your sexuality even? Or do you even conceive that idea? Um, as it is now within the ultra-Orthodox community, within the Hasidic community, to my understanding, there's really no okay. way to be out and stay part of that community because it is such a, a place that's built on gender differentiation, that's mm. built on heteronormativity, that's built on all of those things where your role is very much defined by your gender, includes a relationship with someone of the opposite sex and so on and so forth, right? Folks do occasionally come my way who have left or are leaving those communities. I don't think people really have found a way to stay yet, but leaving can be really, um, really grueling because when you're raised in a community that is that 
close and that tight, first of all, there's beautiful things about it that Mm -hmm. people don't want to leave. And second of all, they don't necessarily have the experience or the skills to go out into the broader world. So I've spoken to people who will leave that community and like go on Grindr to find friends because they don't (laughs) know how to find other gay people. Right. You know, or they'll come to me and my synagogue probably isn't where they're going to pray. It's probably too different from where they've come from. But they'll actually come in and say, you know, I have no sense of a possible relationship with God. So I'm not showing up for services tomorrow, but I want to know, do you think 10 years from now it might be possible for me to rebuild that? What do you answer? I say, I think so. You know, but it's such a, it's a, it's a heartbreaking thing, right? To see folks for whom their experience of religion excluded their sense of who, who they were. And I think the other fallout from that, of course, is you get in a lot of more insular or um, small C conservative communities, right, is that people try really hard to lead straight lives, which has tremendous fallout, not just for them, but for the people they marry. Mm. I have someone who's really close to me who, through her partner, has a nephew whose parents are Orthodox. Mm. And this kid is really young. This kid is like six or seven years old. And it makes me, oh God, here we go. His parents are already seeing signs that he's queer in some way, whether that's gay or mm-hmm. trans. Kids are kids. I think it's way too early to start projecting and making assumptions, but these parents are making these assumptions. And so, um, you know, he goes to Orthodox school, Orthodox daycare. They actually moved him from one daycare to another because the other daycare was like playing the movie Frozen, which they think is feminine and they don't want their son to experience those things. Mm-hmm. And in your experience, how how involved do you get in a situation like that? You know, because this kid has no allies mm. in his position, you know, and I don't think his parents are doing it out of a maliciousness, but that's the situation that he's in. He's being suppressed. His true self is being mm. oppressed. Do you think that, you know, like if I, what kind of responsibility do we have to sort of be allies to these kids that are sort of in these situations? Or do we just trust that, oh, well, it's their parents' issue and just Mm. leave the kid there? I think for every kid, the more loving adults they have in their lives who model different ways to be in the world and be whole in the world, the better, right? So sometimes just your presence and being at home in your own skin can have more of an impact Right. Then you'll ever know being someone who has a special eye out for that kid is there not to undermine the parents, but to to model something that that kid may resonate with. And when the time comes, they may seek you out. And then the other piece is to find along the way, if the parents are open, the right people for them to talk to. Right. right. So my my word, my perspective might carry no weight with them, but I could find an Orthodox rabbi who was open on these issues right. and who would be able to to have a conversation that might help them more. Yeah. Right? And so it's it's all of those things together, but it's tough, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is just heartbreaking. But the other thing queer. is we all know and we we needed those and allies we don't want when we children were kids. To suffer. And we don't yeah. want kids to suffer. Yeah. But people can also surprise you, right? Because yeah. what wherever those parents are coming from, you got to assume they don't want their kid to suffer. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
so there's a New York Times article about you, and you talk mm-hmm. about the scene of lesbian rabbis in New York. Yeah. You, you reference <laughs> it like we all know that it's a scene. Yeah, you're like, you can't walk 10 blocks in New York <laughs> well, without encountering true, a lesbian rabbi. It's true, because you come to Montreal, and people are like, wow, you're a woman and a rabbi. I'm like, yeah, we've been doing that for decades. Tell me more. Like, half the graduating class, half of the people being ordained at least are women are they, these days. Okay. And of those, a lot of them are queer women. Amazing. Are there and queer men? men? And okay, men, okay. absolutely. Okay. So and is there like a, uh, is it a scene? Like in I don't know that it's Do you go for scene? dinner? <laughs> we should, but everyone in New York is too busy. Right. You know? Okay. Um, but it is, it's not unusual there. And I think for me coming here where it is more unusual, it helped to have that experience of a decade of realizing, like, I'm not here to just be a rabbi to the women or just be a rabbi to folks who are queer. I'm here as a rabbi without a modifier in that sense. And at the same time, it's always been important to me to be out because I remember what it feels like to not see yourself. You started your family in New York. You were married. And I say we're married because when you moved here, that marriage didn't really make it, if I understand correctly. Reading about you, it sounds like a divorce was maybe even more difficult to experience as a religious leader than being Mm -hmm. a woman or being gay. You know, it all depends on what community you're in at what given time. I think divorce is generally tough for anyone, no matter what, even if it's the right thing, even if it's civil, (laughs) even straight people. Um, I mean, it's tough. It's not it's not an easy thing. And with kids and everything else. Um, But interestingly, the Jewish community, the progressive Jewish community that I'm part of, um, there is a real value placed on relationships and on family. So certainly in rabbinical school, I felt like it was much more normative to be in a same sex relationship and in a relationship, mm, in a relationship than to be single. Right. And I think that divorce, it challenge, it pushes your own sense of like what your own happily ever after looks like. And and I think that when you are a semi-public figure, there's mm-hmm. always that extra pressure of, you know, I'm, I'm officiating at people's weddings. But, How do they feel about the <laughs> right. fact that I'm divorced or with the gay piece on top yeah. of it? I just remember being devastated as like a closeted teenager when a gay couple would break up, yeah. right? <laughs> like you're thinking, why couldn't they stay together for me? Right. So, and, and that's not, you know, no, it's not so real. But now you're remarried, so I that am. means you yeah. dated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you dated as a single mom who's a rabbi. Yeah. How was that experience? <laughs> you know what? I got really, really lucky, and mm. I found the woman who's now my wife relatively quickly once I put myself out there. She did come from uh, from the Toronto area, you know, how Montreal gets its new Anglo citizens. It's <laughs> being imported by love. Um, right. So I was I was just exceptionally lucky to find her and not have to kind of go through the dating thing. So as an eternally single girl, is not being married or not finding the one a failure? I don't think anyone can call someone else's choices right. a failure. I think that what's hard is when somebody wants to be partnered and doesn't necessarily find somebody, right. that that's internally painful. Mm-hmm. And it's true that in Judaism, there's absolutely a focus on marriage and on having kids. So infertility becomes a real struggle right. for folks as well. There are many ways to be in the world mm-hmm. and to have a life that's a productive and full and fulfilling life and that gives back. So for instance, the notion is that somebody who is a teacher is at least as important as a parent, right? right? So you can be single, as you know, and right. have deep friendships and relationships. Yeah, because I don't feel like and, a failure on that you know, like, like, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not defining yeah. like, the success of my life on whether or not I find the one. But before we started recording, you did ask me, mm-hmm. like, what are you looking for? Because I guess your side hustle is that you're an unofficial... Or you enjoy matchmaking. Listen, I wish I had, like, a great sheet that I could point to and <laughs> say, look what I did. Singles. They're actually... Are people looking? Because you are the rabbi yeah, yeah. I'm polyamorous, mm-hmm. so I could be I could be in a relationship and also be looking for And also partners. be looking. Yeah. Right. So here's the thing, right? There yeah. is this idea in Judaism um, that if you make three matches, you get, like, an immediate pass into heaven. Oh, my God. Yep. Do you have like a little stamp card? <laughs> Did you make, do you have a yeah, how many matches match? so far? I don't think I'm there yet. That's a reality show right there. I know, right? <laughs> let's, but let's but here's the thing. There's okay. this great story in the Talmud, actually. A Roman empress is challenging this, this rabbi and saying, well, what's your God been doing since God created the world and took you people out of Egypt? Like, 
the world has kept going. What's God been up to? Um, and he responds to this challenge by saying, well, God has been matchmaking. And this Roman matron, she says, like, well, that's not a big deal. I could do that really easily. And she lines up all her female slaves and her male slaves, and she matches them up with each other, and they have this mass wedding. And she's like, great, look what I did. And then they all come back the next day, and they're complaining, and they're fighting, and they're arguing, and they want to be divorced. And she goes back to the rabbi, and she's like, you know what? You're right. Making a good match is harder than splitting the Red Sea. Wow. So there yeah, is a sense both that like it can be wonderful and valuable to right. find someone to share your life yeah. with, but you want it to be the right person. Exactly. And it's not easy. I have a feeling you're a really good match. <laughs> I wish. You know what? I just the bigger my pool of people is, the better I do. I so, feel so I'm going I'm I'm to give you my list after the show. And <laughs> it's such a great segue into uh, the book, The Sacred Encounter, Jewish Perspectives on Sexuality. You edited the book. You didn't mm-hmm. write the full thing. So you collaborated with a bunch of rabbis to about, to write about really the intersection of sexuality and the the Jewish faith. My first question is do Jewish people have sex differently? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you feel the need to write something that's specifically about the Jewish faith and sexuality really? Ah, so I don't think it's about Jewish people doing sex differently so much <laughs> as it is about like Judaism has an opinion about everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh. Sex isn't meant to be taboo and it is meant to be part of life. And so a kind of typical or maybe even stereotypical Jewish point of view is to say, okay, so what should I know? What's the best way? How do I navigate some Mm. of the issues of of identity, of consent, of dignity, of desire? Like all of that stuff comes up, right? Yeah. So Jewishly, those are behavioral and spiritual questions. And the the vantage point of this book was to say that those questions and the conversations about them aren't owned by the more orthodox or traditional or fundamentalist parts of our religion or anybody's religion, right? They're human questions. And so we can and should be engaging with them. I mean, did you write the titles of these essays because they're the real sin of Sodom, Mm -hmm. Judaism and pornography? I'm really curious about that. Bisexuality, a guide for the perplexed. Mm-hmm. Do you think bisexuals are perplexed? No, I think other people are perplexed about bisexuals. <laughs> okay, okay, yes. Menopause, mm-hmm. one word, powerful. I uh, wonder if Madonna's reading that chapter. <laughs> Your love is sweeter than wine, erotic theology. Mm-hmm. How to respond to Bible-thumping homophobia. And mm-hmm. I think that should go beyond Judaism. Um, and the last one, the magic of sex in text education. I feel mm-hmm. the Netflix show might be interested in, <laughs> in that chapter. Do you see it as a guide for people to navigate sort of a lot of the the issues that we just sort of ran through? I think that some of it's meant to be a guide for thinking through some of the values behind it, okay. right? Like, I don't think it's good for sex to be a compartmentalized and separate part of one's life. So if we have certain beliefs, we have certain values about, about how we treat each other, about how we take desires seriously, about what a balanced and authentic life looks like, then that bears talking about. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's that's the idea behind it. That anytime we have an excuse to talk about love, uh, that's not a bad thing. And I would argue that Shabbat is the original date night, right? You stop and think about it. You've got candles, oh. maybe a little wine, oh. some beautiful music. Yeah, flowers. Flowers. <laughs> you put away your devices, right? Like Shabbat is, is pretty gosh darn romantic. Obviously, I think we're all pretty aware now of the ways that technology can bring us together and the way that it can make us feel really isolated. I mean, the facts has changed sexuality. But how do you think we keep sort of the, the good things about technology, like as it relates to the way that it connects us versus the way that it isolates us? I was just talking about this with someone the other day who's navigating the online dating world. And, you know, we, we spoke about how it should be an technology can be a wonderful entry point to meet people who you'd never would have met or for, mm-hmm. you know, some queer kid in a small community finding out that he's not alone or whatever yeah. else it might be. Like, that's huge. But it can't be the end point. And I think that for queer people and straight people, there's that the danger of seeing other people as commodities rather than as 
yes. people. And I think that was an issue that existed before technology. It's just exacerbated exactly. by technology. Yes. You know, and the feeling of actually there's a Jewish philosopher and theologian, Emmanuel Levinas, French, mm-hmm. who spoke about this. And his notion was the temptation of temptations, that whether it's with a religious commitment or a relationship commitment, as long as you're kind of thinking, well, let me see what comes along next, you're not actually having the experience of being in a relationship or connecting. No, I totally agree. And I think that like we're all sort of suffering through that. I mean, there's a part of me like I always reach this point when I'm on like the online dating apps where I just start to feel really badly because I'm just making all these judgments based on a picture. Whereas Mm -hmm. if this is someone, if I had met them face to face at a party, I might feel that spark and connection regardless of, you know, what they look like. And it's also pretty common for people to be dating or meet someone and always be thinking of of like, maybe I'll meet someone better or maybe I'll meet someone new. Yeah. So if you think about that, that that happens even when you're out for coffee with a friend and you're scrolling through Facebook Mm -hmm. because maybe there's something else more interesting going on somewhere else, right? right? I think it's a broader challenge for us. And because these technologies, for me as well, like can be so addictive in their own way, it's hard to find a way to step back, which, by the way, is like another thing that I think religious traditions can offer us. I mean, I know there are people on their cell phones during services. <laughs> really? But even the of fact course. that you're in that space and you know you're not supposed to be, yeah. I think it helps a little. Even your sermons? Especially. <laughs> because no, your um, sermons, like, you have a, you do a sermon every Friday night mm-hmm. in Montreal. Pretty much. And they've become quite popular. Like, I know people who are not Jewish who, who have been going. I've been wanting to go for a really long time. Like, I feel like you're kind of like a rock star. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> like, but so I do think there are sermons that people, that people leave for and there are sermons that people stay for. I okay. aspire to sermons people stay for. But even beyond that, right, like the model of Shabbat, of Sabbath as a, as a technology downtime. Um, and to be able to remind yourself that you can be in the world in different ways, to be with the people who are actually in front of you, right? And not not always right. being partially somewhere else. So for Shabbat, you're not allowed to be on for like, how long? How does it work? Like, what's so the, the rule? traditional rules are that you're not using any kind of electricity, technology, et cetera, from sundown Friday to an hour after sundown Saturday. Okay. Um, very few liberal Jews practice it in that traditional way, but there are ways to be thoughtful mm-hmm. about it and to be mm-hmm. deliberate about it, right? So one way of approaching it from a progressive point of view might be to say, all right, it's okay to like Skype or FaceTime or WhatsApp with your grandmother in another city or with a friend for that kind of connection, but I'm not going to check my work email, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, or if I had a stock portfolio, I wouldn't be checking that. Or, you know what I mean, to try and draw those lines to create um, sacred space Mm -hmm. because that's not just a physical thing, right? It's, it's It's much more than that. My spiritual path has been really uh, impacted by recovery. So I stopped drinking like eight, nine years ago. And I, on that journey, I read about the concept of the sexual ideal or the sex mm. ideal, which is what do you see as being the ideal scenario for yourself? For some people, it's getting married. For some people, it might be just to find the right partner but not getting married. Mm. Some people might have some kinks or fetishes mm. that they want to explore. Uh, and I've realized that for me, polyamory or mm. being in sort of relationship with different people is I think it's my path and I wanted to know how is that an idea that would be welcome in a community like yours so it's such a good question and I think that it's a work in progress interestingly biblically there's much more of a model for polygamy than there is for Mm -hmm. um, monogamy that being said it doesn't generally work out so well (laughs) but I remember when I was in New York and going to some of the um marriage equality rallies before it was passed in New York State, you know, you'd see these these evangelicals with their signs, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And you think, but what about Jacob, Rachel and Leah? Yeah. You know, I mean, there was polygamy back then, which I understand is different mm-hmm. than polyamory. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of speaking about models, I do think that Judaism has developed to have a notion of marriage as a sacred and exclusive relationship between yeah. two people in my part of Judaism of whatever gender. Right. That's not the relevant part. But clearly for some people, that's not what their, as you put it, ideal is mm-hmm. or their reality is. I know there are people who are who are working and really thinking about this now in terms of specifically polyamory and Judaism. It's a chapter that's missing from that book, unfortunately. Okay. We couldn't find someone to write on it. <laughs> um, but it's tricky in some ways because it's entangled like Jewishly, biblically in the Talmudic tradition. Monotheism and monogamy are very much understood to be parallels Mm, in terms of having an exclusive commitment between people and each other, between a people and God. So there's a lot that's kind of 
tangled up in that. But there's there's this great saying in Talmud that you can't judge unless your eyes see. And I think that that's really meant to say if someone comes in and says, this is my experience, whether it's being polyamorous or being trans or being queer, any of these things, right, the first response should be to listen. And that's what you would say also to, I'm, I'm guessing, trans people in the community also who would look to the Bible for an idea of how to live their lives. Like, I'm guessing it's the same idea. I mean, that one's relatively yeah. easier. You know, you have the notion of Adam and Eve originally both being made in the divine image together. And you even have this notion that it was more of a hermaphroditic first human right. creation. Um, the Talmud recognizes six different kinds of genders. So this whole gender binary thing is not necessarily intrinsic. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the other thing is when you when you've had the experience of having a door closed in your face, you can't help but be empathetic when somebody else is having that experience. Yeah. Right? I don't want someone's experience of my synagogue and my movement religiously to be what my experience was in the movement I grew yeah. up in. And that doesn't feel genuine to me in mm-hmm. terms of what God wants of us. Now does that mean there's no boundaries? Of course not. There are very clear boundaries in terms of, you know, not sanctioning abuse mm-hmm. and being in relationships where people's dignity is respected yeah, like and so goes. on and so yeah, forth, right? right? It's not anything goes. And that sometimes really surprises people and right. annoys people. They're like, wait a minute, you're reformed. We thought you'd do anything. Right. But <laughs> that's not how it works, actually. Right. Yeah. But what is great, though, is just the idea of continuing to question was a debate about whether the Song of Songs should actually be included in the biblical canon. The folks who said, no, it shouldn't be in, take a guess, why shouldn't the Song of Songs be in the Bible? Yeah. Because they consider it too erotic? Because it's really erotic. If you sit down and you read it, it's like you read Job, it's existentialism. You read Song of Songs, like this is serious love poetry, right? So that was the no camp. We're living in such a chaotic time and people can interpret that in whatever ways they're feeling it, but we're all feeling a certain amount of chaos, you know? Has that translated into more people seeking you out? You know, as with many things, Quebec is just, it's it, its sui generis, it's its own thing, right? Because of the, the grip that Catholicism had and then the Quiet Revolution. And a lot of people are allergic to religion here in mm-hmm. a way that they aren't elsewhere. Um, but you're right, people still have questions. People are still looking for meaning. That's who we are as human beings. So we do have people interestingly, who come our way who aren't Jewish, who don't have a Jewish background, but who are interested in learning, who are interested in some cases in conversion, many of whom with a Catholic background, many but not all of whom are identify as LGBTQ, who will say, I don't think I can find this in the community my parents were part of, mm-hmm. but I'm looking. Yeah, And I, I'm so moved by that, right, that people have the courage to step through the door, which is not easy mm-hmm. when you don't know anyone, when it's not a tradition you're familiar with, when you've been burned or maybe hurt by other expressions of religion in the past where it's been weaponized and used against you, to have the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to try again because there's something here that's important. I have such admiration for that. Do you sometimes speak to people who are atheists, who don't believe in God, who don't understand how there can be injustices and God can coexist in this world? That doesn't make sense to them. That's not a small question, let's just say. Um, But yeah, that's a huge question. We've been, you read the book of Job, it's all about that question, right? We've been struggling with this since the very beginning. Why do bad things happen to good people? Where's God? It's a question posed by the Holocaust, by uh, by so much, right? for people who take faith and belief and God seriously, it's a relationship, right? And like any relationships, there are times of of conflict and of tension or disappointment. Uh, Buber talks about the eclipse of God, that there are times when we think God's there, but we can't see God or we can't feel God. Um, and one of the things I think that helps is to 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 think past what we may have learned as kids about what God looks like. You know, I mean, Zeus is the guy in the clouds throwing thunderbolts. That's not <laughs> the God of my tradition. Right. And so I often talk about like a theological toolbox that there are so many different images and understandings of what God might be. It's in Islam. It's in Christianity. Right. So maybe the God that you grew up with an understanding of is a God you can no longer believe in. But, but it's not the end of the story. What do you think of pop culture really influencing people's faith? Like a lot of people are actually believing in Jedis. Like, <laughs> <laughs> would actually, you know, like sort of use 
these 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 mm-hmm. stories as a moral compass of how to live their lives. Or Harry Potter is another mm-hmm. myth. Do you think we should be weary of of using pop culture to because uh, it's so omnipresent? I don't know, but it's always been a shared conversation, right? Mm-hmm. We live in the times we live in. So you look at the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I reread that as an adult. It's so Christological mm-hmm. that went totally over my head as a kid, right? There are people who say Harry Potter is anti-Christian. I read Harry Potter and I think, oh my gosh, that's some serious Jesus imagery <laughs> near the end, right? Um, so there, I think they're shared conversations. I don't think we gain by being threatened by them right. mm-hmm. because we're all, again, grappling with these questions of like, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What happens after I die? How do I live with loss? Like, how do I live beyond myself in service mm-hmm. of others, right? Those are basic human questions. So, of course, literature takes them on. Of course, pop culture takes them on. Um, and there's a, a great tradition in Judaism and most sermonizing, I think, that you kind of start way off in left field. So let's say you're talking about the new Star Wars movie. Mm-hmm. You get people in because they're thinking, oh, my gosh, how on earth is she going to connect that to the Torah portion from right. something that was written thousands of years ago? But that's the art of it, right. is to say this thing going on in your lives that you relate to guess what? It's going to help you relate to something else that you maybe right. didn't think you could. And then sometimes it can be the opposite. Like, I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up, but like there was a moment almost like 15 years ago now, like when Madonna got really into Kabbalah mm-hmm. and like it suddenly became this word that so many of us had never heard before, but yet became I still don't know curious what Kabbalah about. is. Did you ever run into Madonna in New York? <laughs> no, she didn't show up at the Jewish Lesbian Rabbi Club. <laughs> <laughs> um... <sighs> But, like, what do you make of, like, when Judaism actually becomes, like, has Which a is, cultural And it's such an unusual thing, right? right? Because we're not a proselytizing religion. We don't generally put ourselves out there. And what's ironic about it is that Kabbalah is such an esoteric part of Judaism for most people who are living kind of active Jewish lives. It's actually, um, in some ways, a very challenging part of Judaism because it's incredibly gendered Mm. um, and ethnocentric in some ways and other things. So it's such a bizarre thing to popularize. But again, first of all, I think it's brilliant marketing by whoever kind of got that all started. That red. uh, red. (laughs) But I also like it's sometimes frustrating for me because I don't think that I think people come to it from a really genuine place. I think that when it becomes that commercialized, it's not necessarily offering that much right. depth. Yeah. And so much of Judaism is about community, and it becomes a very individualistic mm. kind of thing, which is, again, not not where the weight of the tradition yeah. is. The point is being a good person, not wearing a red string. Right. One last thing that I felt really moved by, and you said that in the Jewish tradition, we aren't born who we become. hmm Who do you feel like you've become? So I would disagree with myself a little bit in the sense that I think there's such power to the whole notion of, you know, God made me gay, that we're made in God's image and God doesn't make mistakes in that sense, right? I think that's born this way, right? There you go, (laughs) pop culture reference. So important, so Mm -hmm. important, right? And that God... In, in our tradition doesn't want us to live without love, without relationship, without sex, without all those things. Um, but the part about becoming, I think, is really important, that we're meant to be on a journey to be better, to become our true selves, to form those relationships with other people and with the divine, however we we understand that, right? So if you'd said to me that when I was, I don't know, 10 years old or standing up at my bat mitzvah at 13, that I would be the rabbi of a reform synagogue, that I would be married to a woman and divorced and remarried, that I would have three kids of, you know, 16, 10 and, and six months, um, there's so much there I wouldn't have imagined. And yet I'm so grateful. Um, but I think all of us, right, reach a point in our lives where things don't work out as planned, where the circumstances of our life aren't who or what we thought they would be. And then in those moments, you you can either kind of dig in your heels or you can try and grow and find a way forward with love. And I think that any religious tradition worth its salt helps us do that. Thank you so much, Rabbi Groshko. Thank you so much, Rabbi. That was Rabbi Lisa Greshko. The recordings you heard throughout were from her February 14th sermon at Temple Emmanuel Beth Shalom in Montreal. The music was performed by music director Rona Nadler with accompanist Mark McDonnell and the congregants. 
big thanks to all of them for allowing us to record. So Trana, after we finished talking with Rabbi Grushko, you stayed a little while longer to see if her matchmaking uh, ability would work for you. Well, I mean, she asked me what I'm looking for, so she like took mental note. I told her all the things that I'm looking for in a person, and she's going to keep it in mind. And if there's someone who matches what I'm looking for and I match what they're looking for, and she added me on Facebook, so I know she's going to like, <laughs> she's going to do this. <laughs> that would be phenomenal. To be continued. <laughs> Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? I am obsessed with Madonna's Madam X album. And oh, a year later. A year later. I Because I wasn't obsessed when it first came out. Um, and now we're sort of at the end of this whole era. She's about to start her last few dates of the Madam X tour, which has really seen Madonna unraveling. Like, she's had really bad injuries. She's canceled more dates on this tour than she has in her entire career. She's still wearing the eye patch. She's still wearing the eye patch. She has a cane now. Do you think she still follows the Kabbalah? Of course. Really? Oh my God. For sh- she invested way too much money in the Kabbalah <laughs> Center to ever admit that it's not working anymore. Trust me, she's still deep in it. Okay. Um, and when the album first came out last year, I really thought it was like the worst thing she had ever done. Like I thought there were so many cringeworthy songs and... Because the whole of, the whole premise was that she lived in Portugal for yeah. a year or two so years. So it kind of has this like world music flavor to it. Just right. kind of like this white woman appropriating everything, which she's done her whole career. Right. But on this album, it's just so blatant. But she already gave us La Isla Bonita. You I know, know what I mean? but she's back. Okay. <laughs> and anyway, I mean, I just wasn't having any of it. You know, like I was just so turned off. And I never thought I would say this, but I think there are really some brilliant moments on the album. And I think that a lot of people have a lot of disdain for Madonna and worse, just a complete lack of interest. Like I talk about the album on stage and even when I'm in front of like very queer audiences, I ask the audience like who even knew that Madonna had an album called Madame X and most people still (laughs) a year later don't even know that this album exists. What what do you like about it now? What I like about it is that Madonna, I feel like she's actually experimenting, you know, and on Rebel Heart and MDNA, which are the two albums that came before, really felt like Madonna chasing trends, even Hard Candy, too. Like, it really felt sort of regressive. But you don't feel that she's chasing the, like, reggaeton. There's a couple. There's a couple of songs for sure that are still, I'm not saying the whole album is brilliant. (laughs) Like, it definitely contains some of her worst stuff. But I think there are moments of real authenticity. Like, there's this song on the album called Looking for Mercy, where she's, she's looking for a daughter in the house? Because <laughs> <laughs> no. she has a daughter named Mercy. I, yeah, she does. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but it's just, I, it feels like this rare moment of Madonna, like, really taking a hard look at herself and, like, asking God to teach her how to love. Is it really love if it hurts? Is it really pain if it's inside? We've said before that she is the most artistically interesting when she's very vulnerable yeah. and very lost. And that's when she gives us the good stuff. And there's ironic, I agree with you. And ironically, there's this song on the album called Extreme Occident where she says, I'm not lost. <laughs> like the whole message of the song is like everyone's telling her that she's lost, but she's like, I'm not. And even on this tour, like her determination to continue and not cancel, even though she is in like such severe pain, but then in so many other ways, playing the victim at the same time. It is the most confusing, bizarre era of her career, but that's why I'm obsessed with it. Well, the thing is, Madonna is my primary diva. Me too. She's she's the OG for me. So to hear that it's not that bad, I'll I'll revisit it. I think you need to revisit it. When the single Mid-Ain came out last year, I was DJing like a queer night and I I dropped it. You know, like I played the song and it killed the dance (laughs) floor. Yeah, cleared the dance floor. No one cared. And it's okay. I think Madonna just needs to embrace the fact that people do not care. And that's okay. You've done it, Madonna. Like now you can just be real and do what you want to do. What are you obsessed with? I'm so embarrassed. So in this segment over time, um, you know, I've talked about 
MTV's Are You the One? Yeah. The reality show, TLC's 90 Day Fiance. Yes. And now I'm binging Love is Blind on you Netflix. You have such a pattern. You love these <laughs> no, love shows. But these trashy love shows, they have to be kind of trashy. The, the concept is that you have, you know, love is blind, but it's also very gendered. Let's just say <laughs> okay. that. So it's two sides, men and women. Um, and they they kind of access each other through pods when they're where there is a wall and they can talk through the wall. So the ear... They're in pods. Like they're kind of like small rooms. Okay. That are actually even like the design of the room is gendered. Like the male side will be rougher and then the female side will be like different fabrics. It's super weird. (laughs) (laughs) Can't believe they decorated the pods. Um, Like the first day they probably talk to everyone. So let's say like it's really like speed dating. Here you will choose someone to marry. Hello. Nice to hear from you. Can't say see ya without ever seeing They build a connection based on the most like mundane facts about their lives. Like, oh my God, we're both from the same state. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I mean, that all kind of reminds me of when we spoke to Rabbi Grushko and she told us about that story from the Talmud about matchmaking and how after three matches, you know, you get to heaven or whatever. But like all these shows are trying to make all these matches and like it's so superficial. Most of them don't end up working. I feel like if three matches get you into heaven, I feel like three mismatches should get you into hell. Um, anyways, it gets interesting because there was one uh, man on the show who is uh, from Louisiana. His name is Carlton. Like now, I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil a few a few things. Okay. So if you're planning on watching, come okay. back to this episode after. But he falls for this woman named Diamond. He proposes to her. That's how it works. They oh propose God, before they even met. Before they even meet, they propose in the booth. But he has a secret. What? His secret is that he's bisexual uh-huh. and that he's dated men before. Being engaged to to Diamond. Did she say booth. yes? She says yes. Yeah. So when the two people say yes, they meet on a resort in Mexico. And he's struggling because he has to tell her. He has to Who come cares? out. Well, that's the thing. Do it, you even need to? Well, he feels a lot of shame about okay. about this. And he feels like he has to tell her. And he feels, and that's the part that is really heartbreaking and the part that is worth watching in the show is... He feels that she will reject him if he tells her that he's mm. bisexual because in his mind, a woman would not perceive a bisexual man as a real man. Mm. It's super sad. Yeah. Um, and her point is more that, you know, she wishes he had told her earlier. And he was like, well, if I well, had we have told- only known you for two days, lady. <laughs> <laughs> How and, much earlier could I have told and you? And he says, if I told you earlier, maybe you would have rejected me. So yeah. it's. It's a really interesting question. Uh, I know about how much you reveal up front. And queer representation. You know, that's always what I'm looking for in shows. And and, and with this case, it's like, you know, a bisexual black man from Louisiana. Like, I'm really interested in his story and I want to know how it goes. And some parts are heartbreaking. And is it hosted by Nick Lachey? Yes, with his wife, Vanessa Lachey. Oh, I still love him. Oh, you should watch it. I think I'll listen to Madame X. For more, we invite you to check out our fabulous column with Daily Extra. You can catch that at dailyxtra.com. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter, with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Big thanks to Phil Rochefort and the Fi Center for recording this episode. You can also check out the full video interview in our Facebook group. The book we referenced during the interview is called The Sacred Encounter, Judaism and Sexuality. And if you're ever in Montreal and are curious about attending a service, you can find more details at templemontreal.ca. And the Shabbat services are open to people of all backgrounds. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Narani is the executive producer. And of course, if you haven't already, join the Facebook group. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Five Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. See ya. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.